ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Qantas, or the flying kangaroo as it's known, has been in the headlines a lot lately and most of that news has not been good. You are the most complained company in Australia. A true appearance. You're of... trying to say to me that there's no problem here. I'm not. Does I'm... The board, has the board made any, any comment about the fact that the credibility of Qantas has collapsed under your leadership? But that's not true, Senator. The workers emerged triumphant from the High Court in Canberra today. We loved Qantas, the people behind me, the workers that stood there made sure that your airline was the safest in the world. It's not the safest in the world anymore, but let's hope it gets back to there. This has been a spiteful corporate dictatorship and the board has been right behind Alan Joyce in that spite every step of the way. It's time for them to go. What is clear is that Qantas over a period of time has not been an employer of choice, has not been a corporate of choice. A large percentage of my colleagues would love to help Qantas get back on its feet and become a great airline again. And the biggest change of culture Qantas need is they need to put the customer first. Together we can get through the current challenges and show our customers why we deserve to be their trusted first choice. And that last voice you heard was the new Qantas CEO, Vanessa Hudson. Now, while all that's been going on, regional airports in Queensland are making moves to expand the number of international airlines touching down in places like Cairns and the Gold Coast. This will bring more international visitors to some of Australia's biggest tourism hotspots. I'm Sinead Mangan and this is Australia Wide, coming to you from Wadjuk Country, Perth. There's been a lot of focus on Qantas in the last months in the media. But while the spotlight has been on the flying kangaroo, another international airline has been approached to look at opening up more routes in regional Australia. If this was to happen, state-owned airline Qatar could strike a deal to fly into two airports in Queensland. That would be Gold Coast and Cairns. Right now, Australia's bilateral agreement with Qatar caps the number of flights the airline can operate into capital cities, but it does not stop them from servicing regional airports. Our reporter in Cairns, Chris Testa, has been looking at the story. Now, Chris, as we heard there, there is lots of politics around air routes, around Qantas, around airlines in Australia. Can you describe the political backdrop to this story? Yes, Sinead, it's been quite interesting to see the reaction and the government's handling of the news that it blocked Qatar Airways' request to increase the number of flights that it operates from Doha into the major cities of Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane uh, by 21 a week, a bilateral agreement that um, Qatar and Australia have limits that to 28, as you just mentioned. It was a bit of an ambit came. Sorry, it was a bit of an ambit claim from Qatar to to make that request, and it was rejected by the minister Catherine King. What really bubbled away controversially afterwards was the explanations as to why she said it wasn't in the national interest to approve that request, but wasn't very keen to elaborate on exactly what was in the national interest or why it wasn't in the national interest. Of course, there were some women, Australian women, who were subject to some examinations um, in Qatar a few years ago. They were Qatar Airways passengers. Um, there was some suspicion that that had flown into the decision. And then this um, you know, belief that it's a protection mechanism for Qantas to maintain a strong national carrier. Qantas has had its own controversies and a, a CEO recently departing in Alan Joyce after many, many years. So 
Um, in a way, the government left itself open for questions and didn't really fill in the gaps as to explicitly why it had rejected Qatar Airways' request to um, fly more frequently into those three big Australian cities. Now, there's no doubt, like, there's an awful lot happening in this kind of space in Australia. So another kind of development is that there is the possibility that Qatar could look at other routes into regional airports. How might this change things for regional passengers? Certainly there was a bit of disappointment in far north Queensland here uh, at the government's decision not to allow those extra Qatar flights. Even though the proposal wasn't to fly into Cairns, they felt uh, as a region that is very heavily reliant on tourism that they would have seen some benefits from additional passengers being able to come into Australia. They believed it would lower the cost of airfares. But of course that bilateral agreement only affects flights into Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane and Perth. It doesn't necessarily block Qatar from flying into other airports. They fly into Adelaide and used to fly into Canberra. So the the airports have seen an opportunity and they're, they're talking to Qatar about the possibility of having direct flights from Doha into Cairns and the Gold Coast. Um, we have heard, though, from uh, Professor Guy Lohman from Griffith University's Institute for Tourism. He believes that if consumers do want more competition, they need to vote with their feet. If we want those airlines to start operating in other routes that they don't operate, Cafe Pacific, the Singapore Airlines, we need to create a demand for this. Because at the moment... What we are seeing in, the, in terms of that demand is only uh, mostly Australia's going overseas than really our industry being able to bring tourists back. Now, Chinese markets, for example, still very much closed. We're going to have China Southern flying uh, to Queensland and mainland China for the first time uh, happening soon. So we also need to do the other end, which is to bring a more diverse number of competitors so we don't rely just on the Qatar conversation, if that makes sense. Professor Gay Lohman from Griffith University's Institute for Tourism, and he's speaking to our reporter, Chris Testa. Now, I'd imagine if this was to happen, it would be a game changer for regional airports, Chris. Certainly they believe that they have got a very compelling case. They're actually quite buoyant about the demand. Uh, of course, after the pandemic, which was a very difficult time for economies in places like Cairns, And the Gold Coast people are now starting to travel in more and these airports are crunching the numbers. Uh, Among those that's been looking at that is Adam Rowe, who's the Chief Operating Officer Officer of Queensland Airports Limited, which operates the Gold Coast Airport. From our perspective, the, the demand is already there. It's about getting that capacity into service, that demand. In some instances where maybe demand isn't quite enough, that's where you can look to work with other airports um, in Australia or New Zealand to, to help build that um, that additional demand and, and create a, um, a compelling business case for an airline. Adam Rowe, who's the Chief Operating Officer of Queensland Airports Limited. Now, I believe it's not just Qatar that's looking at this. There's a push by another airline to go into Cairns. Which airlines are keen? Singapore Airlines is already flying into Cairns, but it's reacted to what it sees as, you know, a recovering industry and recovering travel. It's going to increase its services, its number of seats into Cairns in time for next Easter. 
the other big one that Cairns Airport and Tourism Tropical North Queensland and other operators are, are really working on at the moment, they're trying to convince Cathay Pacific to come back to the region. Uh, it's the Hong Kong carrier. It stopped to flying to Cairns actually in 2019. So before the pandemic, for commercial reasons, it stopped flying into Cairns. But recently, a tourism delegation featuring business and political leaders from Cairns actually travelled to Hong Kong. They're making a strong case for Cathay to come back. Cathay already flies into Brisbane. Um, so that is underway. They're expecting it will take some months before they have a definitive answer about that due to aircraft and staff availability. But Richard Barker, he's the CEO of Cairns Airport. He believes Cathay Pacific plus a Qatar Airways link to the far north, if that could happen, would help tap into some crucial markets. We've got plans in place along with Tourism Tropical North Queensland to really market the region hard in Europe because a lot of the travellers on those Singapore airline flights are, are European travellers or travellers from India. So we have a lot of activity planned for uh, particularly Western Europe and the UK because we know that there is a lot of interest in coming to our region but they're having difficulty getting flights. That's Richard Barker, who's the Cairns Airport CEO. Now, Chris, are the airports um, equipped to take these bigger aircraft? There are about 40 to 60 international flights a week that are landing um, from overseas at Cairns and the Gold Coast Airport. So these are the two busiest regional airports in the country. Cairns has flights coming in from places like Japan, uh, Singapore, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, there is a hope that soon they'll start coming back in from mainland China and, of course, both Gold Coasts and Cairns also have flights coming in from Bali. So there are they are busy international airports, but uh, direct flights to the Middle East would be something new. What about tourism figures? Are they reacting to this pitch from the airports to get these bigger airlines in? There is a lot of excitement about it. As I said earlier, there was a bit of disappointment in the government's decision not to allow Qatar to have extra flights because they felt that these regions would have benefited, even if the flights weren't directly coming here. They are still, they're expecting a, a busy rush to come in the months ahead, particularly over summer as tourists from China start to return. The Chinese government having recently uh, re-added Australia to that list of countries that Chinese group tours are permitted to operate to. But there are still some challenges. So Jeff York's the CEO of a luxury uh, Crystal Book hotel chain in Cairns. And he says tourists from overseas aren't finding it easy to get from A to B once they're actually here at the moment. A lot of them want to do what's called the, the cultural triangle, which is Sydney, Sydney Harbour, the Opera House. They want to go to Uluru, there's Rock, and they want to go and see the reef and rainforest in far north Queensland. But the ability for them to get half reasonably priced airfares <coughs> to do that travel is incredibly difficult, and a lot of them aren't coming because they can't get internal airfares. That's Jeff York, and he's the CEO of the luxury Crystal Brook Collection hotel chain, which is based out of Cairns. Interesting that he called it the cultural triangle there, Chris. It's not an expression I'd heard before. Uh, no, neither, but I, I can see how you could make that connection. It certainly is uh, tens of thousands of years of rich living culture. Absolutely. Chris Tester in Cairns, thanks very much for, for kind of fleshing this whole story out for us. My pleasure, Sinead. You're listening to Australia Wide. On ABC Radio. As the country edges closer to a vote on the Indigenous voice to Parliament, traditional custodians in Western Australia say it's taking its mental toll. There are questions around the campaign tactics used on both sides of the argument, with arguments reaching fever pitch this week. 
With four weeks until voting, our reporters, Georgia Loney and Amelia Searson, spoke to Indigenous people about how they're coping as arguments from both sides step up. In Margaret River, traditional custodian Zach Webb says the weeks of ongoing commentary about The Voice are taking a toll. It's very hard for Aboriginal people to be kept in a safe space during this moment. And I don't think that's really been considered in this whole process. Between all the, the media stuff that we see on TV every day and every night, every afternoon when we get home, through to all the stuff that we see on, online and, and, um, and the kind of vitriol that comes. He says many people are reluctant about sharing their views on The Voice. Because you, don't, you, you, you want to stand for something, but at the same time, if you're going to be attacked for standing up for something um, or something that you believe in, um, it makes you shy away, I guess, from that issue. Noongar woman Jacinta Walton says the debate about the voice on social media is exhausting. It's tiring and it's emotionally draining and frustrating. It's been draining to see people from all sides have to use online social media as a way to have to, I suppose, fight their points in a way. University of Western Australia Indigenous psychology expert Pat Dudgeon says she wasn't expecting the debate to turn so nasty. There's been a huge toll on Indigenous people, one that I didn't expect. I'm I'm quite appalled at the way it's going. There's a lot of misinformation. I think that the intention certainly was, and my expectation and and others um, other people's expectation is that it would be a respectful debate. She says Aboriginal health organisations are stepping up support for Indigenous people during the lead up to the referendum and she's urging people to also seek out social support. Ensure that you have a good social network. I know that families might be split about the issue. We know that at least 80% of Aboriginal people do support the voice. If your opinion from looking at the facts is different, you need to do um, be true to yourself and do what you think is right. So stand, stand um, with that, but do get a social network of similar thinking people. So, you know, there might be an elder or, or two in your family or in the community that um, you think share the same opinion. People are passionate either way. I'd be avoiding them and what they've got to say. I think this needs to be a thoughtful, quiet process rather than a, a screaming, strident process. As the countdown to the referendum begins, Jacinta Walton wants Aboriginal people to remember just how resilient they are. A lot of our old people and young people as well, but they've been very resilient considering everything that they've faced throughout their lives. For so long, they've been so strong. And, yeah, once again, we face as a nation a question to, to hopefully make positive change. Georgia Loney and Amelia Searson there speaking to Zach Webb and Jacinta Walton in WA Southwest about the impact of the broader commentary around the voice to Parliament. You're listening to Australia Wide. I didn't know Melbourne much. I knew where the race courses were. I'm making signs for the sleepy lizards. Basically less eggs this year than what we would have expected. The houses that are near the edge of the bush, they might encounter a snake up to four times a year, a death adder. Um, Just, yeah, see how it goes. On ABC Radio. 
It's amazing how practical, functional things can eventually become quite valuable. For example, if you've got an old wool sorting or classing table gathering dust in the shed right now, it's worth a bit of money. Even if your wooden workhorse is wobbly, broken or in pieces, people want them to restore them into dining tables. Landline's Pip Courtney met a carpenter from Cecil Plains in southeast Queensland who's got a 12-month wait list to restore these increasingly hard-to-find historic gems. Jason Porter grew up on the family farm at Cecil Plains, three hours west of Brisbane. Unlike his three brothers, Jason wasn't interested in farming. Those boys were playing in the sandpits with the trucks and the tractors and that never was me. After graduating in business and events management and a few years working in Brisbane, a jaded Jason was back home licking his wounds. I was a bit lost and I thought I'll get a farm job. They actually gave me a, a cottage to live in and that cottage had no furniture and I had no money. And I just thought, well, have a crack at it myself. He posted a picture of a dog kennel on Facebook and ever since he's had a full book of clients. The dog kennels are long gone. He's now known for restoring old wool tables. The grain surgeon turns old wrecks into dining tables, giving them a new life as the hub of a home. When they come in, the roughest guts, you turn them around, you go, wow, that's gone from being in a wool shed to now a dining piece. Even the fellow who made it back in the day, he would have laughed at me and said, these were never going to be dining tables, mate. The late bloomer is now back on the farm with his wife and two kids. I live a adult fairy tale. It sounds very cringy. Sorry for everyone who heard that, but it literally is what I feel I'm doing because I love where I live, Cecil Plains. I'm lucky to have my family here. I'm living the dream. Parents Brett and Louise were delighted but surprised. Well, at school he did uh, manual arts. Probably his first job was, uh, well, it was a dustpan actually, some metalwork came time to give him a mark, the teacher got the dustpan and swept off his bench and went over to the bin and tipped the lot in. <laughs> I thought, well, he's got it enough with his hands, this boy. <laughs> Restoration starts with what he calls the IKEA phase. I've pulled it apart, basically in its flat pack form. And what have you had to do to the wood? Uh, I've put it through my planers, my jointer and my thicknesser to basically square it all up again so it comes back together better than it ever did before. Some tables are so far gone, he only has the dowels to work with or slats. I'll get a lot of the older fellas and the, the bushies and they'll say, oh, no, nah, they, never, they never made it with slats, mate. They always use dowels. But I can tell you now, I've had so many different ones that came in. You know, no one's ever followed a code back in the day that there had to be this and had to be that. Wool families are Jason's most common customers. It's like an heirloom, something that they can actually keep in the family, talk to their friends about, say, oh, geez, you know, we got this fella to do this table and something that they can hand down as well. Removing decades of lanolin is tricky. Stuff. Oh, it's, it is the worst one I've seen in terms of lanolin build-up. He's facing at least a day of scraping. After that, he'll scrub each slat with a wire brush and finally a sander. So would you just throw these away? Oh, you couldn't. You've got you to keep it. That's the whole point, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. They might look worthless, but even wobbly wrecks like this, bought at auction in Victoria, cost thousands. When you take it apart, do you chuck all these nails away? Oh, no, definitely not. You've got to keep it as authentic as possible, I think. I'd hate to see new hardware in an old uh, wool table. 
As word spread on Facebook, fans who couldn't find an old table commissioned reproductions. For a vintage feel, Jason uses reclaimed wood. These are old joists from barns that have pulled down in the area. Local farmer Tim Clay has one of Jason's first restorations. I just thought it would be a great family heirloom to keep passing down. and It's fantastic. We sit around it every night. Um, it'll last me out anyway. Nothing like the kitchen table for sitting around. That was Landline's Pip Courtney with Cecil Plains farmer Tim Clay and carpenter Jason Porter. One very busy and in-demand man. And you can see Pip's story on Landline this Sunday at 12.30 or you can catch up later on it on iview. And also, if you have got an old table, let Landline know by posting a picture of it on their Facebook page. They want to see as many of them as they can. And also coming up on Landline, let's have a listen. This week on Landline, the program giving people a taste of the farming life. Yeah, they've welcomed me with open arms and it's made the whole journey that little bit easier. Knowing that I have their support at the end of the day makes it Makes me feel welcome. And the farmers feeling the pain of rewiring the nation. The trust is so broken, I I don't know how they'll get it back. That's Landline, Sunday 12.30 on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView. You're listening to Australia Wide. On ABC Radio. And we're sticking with farming now because for Albany couple Cody and Jess Schilling, the dream was always to own their own farm. And while working towards it, Cody worked on local farms around WA South Coast, while Jess built a livestock vet business. Now, finally, their dream has become a reality. And they reflected on that with our reporter, Sophie Johnson. It's a little bit overwhelming at times. We have chipped away and chipped away. Jess and I were only speaking the other night's between us like 35 years of work since I finished school and Jess finished uni to buy where we are now. It's only little, it's by no means the, you know, it's not really significant in what we're doing with the cattle, but it's home now and it's, we're building a house and yeah, it's great. It's a great motivator to push on and yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah. And my first thought, my first thoughts are we're so grateful. We've been given so many amazing opportunities and met met so many amazing people that have helped us along our journey. And it's really nice to see your hard work pay off. I think getting in, getting into ag can be quite difficult. I'm from the city, I'm not from the country, um, and Code's grandparents farmed, but he wasn't born to inherit a farm. And, you know, a lot of the time you get negativity saying you can't do it, it's too hard, but we've, we've certainly done it. I think that's probably our motivator, isn't it, when someone tells you you can't do something, <laughs> to um, just go ahead and do it anyway. So you've had your own farm now for just over 12 12- months how has it has it been running your own operation yeah it's interesting it's over a morning I might my first job in the morning might be sit down for a couple of hours make some phone calls and emails and well that's not in my mind I've always done labor type work so unless I'm out working I don't feel like I'm working so that's taken some getting used to you know to not be sitting at the table feeling anxious that I'm not especially if the sun's out it's a good day oh, I could be fencing it could be so that's taken um yeah that's taken, taken some getting used to and obviously I've always worked for a wage so now with what we're doing from the ag point of view, it's a lumpy cash flow. So I've had to, you know, it's taken some getting used to to sort of plan that, how that's going to work. And obviously Bovitech comes into that, doing some heavy lifting throughout the year when, you know, we're not really deriving any, any income off the farm until we sell. We've got something to sell, you know. So, I mean, Jess has probably speak for herself. But... Yeah, oh, it's, been, it's been fantastic. Um, you know, Cody and I's relationship has certainly grown since we've, we've done this together and, and I've, I've had the vet practice now for, 
for nearly a decade and so the business side of things wasn't anything new to me but it was great to be able to give Cody a hand getting getting that side of things up and running um it's it's certainly as a business owner you spend a lot more time in the office than you expect that you would (laughs) than actually doing fun stuff out in the field but but that's been great learning learning that together so why was this the dream for you guys I mean Jess you're from the city originally and everything why was it to have your own farm what inspired it oh what else would you do it's just such a beautiful part of the world to live yeah you know you're outdoors you're working with stock you're working with great people like-minded people such a healthy lifestyle you know you're active and I mean Albany is just a stunning part of the world isn't it I know you and I spoke before Sophie and I sort of said we'd we'd worked so hard and we had a you know we we really put our heads down and we didn't really know what we were working towards there wasn't really any you know we'd never talked about it it was always just we we did what we loved. We both work hard. We both got, you know, when you, I think when you love what you do, it's easy to put your head down and go for it. But we didn't really know what it was all for. But now we've got this place and we're building the house and it sort of feels like it's all it all sort of fits. It's a lot to be said for doing what you love. Our reporter in Albany, Sophie Johnson, speaking there to Cody and Jess Schilling. And that is Australia-wide for this Friday. I hope you have a lovely weekend. I'll speak to you again next week. Cheerio. Listen.